I'm your host, Mark Hokusang. Welcome to Heavy Hitter Sports, the podcast focused on notable athletes and business leaders that have overcome adversity to achieve success. Thanks for tuning in. Episode number 10 awaits. It's a rare athlete that is just as influential today in their sport as when they passed away decades prior. But Steve Prefontaine's legacy clearly shines brighter than ever. Admittedly, I'm a biased Oregonian and former Nike employee, but I view Pre as a -a one-of-a-kind inspirational game changer. And it only seems right to focus on Pre now given the recent anniversary of his tragic death on May 30th, 1975, last week's NC2A track and field championship at his newly renovated Hayward Field home, and the impending U.S. Olympic trials and Prefontaine Classic in that same spectacular setting. What makes Pre so memorable? Why do runners of all stripes still revere this rebel? And why do most Oregonians think of Prefontaine as the greatest athlete to ever hail from their state? I'll try and answer those questions in this episode with the help of some notable figures. Greg Doobie, Nike's Senior Director of Heritage and Culture, will share his thoughts from our recent conversation. And the sentiments of rival and friend Frank Shorter, Oregon coach Bill Bowerman, and Nike founder Phil Knight will also be shared. Solving the mystery of what makes Priest still so relevant is not easy, but I believe there are seven key factors behind Steve's lasting impact. Let's start at the beginning, literally. Steve was born in January 1951 in Coos Bay, a small Oregon seaside lumber and fishing town. Yes, he became a celebrity in this tiny blue-collar town during his teens. As a high school junior at Marshfield, he went undefeated and won the two-mile state title. By his senior year, Steve was breaking records and being courted by 40 colleges. In our conversation, Greg Doobie, the 33-year Nike veteran, describes how Steve's hard scrabble upbringing contributed to his later success. The results, the times, the number of world records, that, that's all things you can look up. It's what's behind that. That I think that's the, the, the story of a kid from Coos Bay. And this idea of he came from a culture and environment in Coos Bay where it was that was a town, a hardworking mill town. You had to prove your worth in, 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 in the that's how he saw his running. That running was the opportunity for him to to prove his worth. That's how we connected with the working class in such a meaningful way. Bill Bowerman's full right scholarship offer to run for the University of Oregon served as Steve's ticket out of Coos Bay. Staying home was pivotal in cementing Steve not only as a fan favorite in Eugene, but throughout the state. Steve would reciprocate by calling his fans in Eugene, my people. Greg added. And why he truly became the Oregon prodigal son is the idea of running for his people in in Oregon was way more important to him than he was getting big money offers to go on the professional track circuit, which he didn't want to do because he wanted to run for his people in his state. And that to me says a lot about, you think about Phil Knight and the idea of his Oregon roots and his love for his ducks and his state. Phil Knight himself would explain the mutual attraction this way in his book, Shoe Dog. All Oregonians love Pre because he was ours. He was born in our midst, raised in our rainy forest, and we cheered him since he was a pup. We watched him break the national two-mile record as an 18-year-old, and we were with him step by step 
through each glorious NC2A championship, every Oregonian felt emotionally invested in his career. Factor number two behind Steve's legacy, it's simple. Pre's results and the records he broke were unrivaled at the time. When Steve appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated at age 19, it became evident to all that he was a difference maker. While at Oregon, Steve won three Division I NC2A cross-country championships and four three-mile or 5,000-meter titles in track. Steve's collegiate record, 35-3. and His only three losses coming in the mile, which was never his specialty. Pre would go on to hold seven American records from 2,000 to 10,000 meters. Factor number three involves Pre's fierce tenacity, relentless work ethic, and fearless running style. After Bill Bowerman retired in Oregon, Steve was coached by Bill Dellinger, and Bill said that Pre's greatest talent was that he went through four years of college without ever missing a workout and four years of never missing any meets. Here's how Greg describes Pree's go-big-or-go-home approach in the climatic 5,000-meter race during the 1972 Olympics. I think it's pretty well chronicled that if, if he had saved himself, if he had run a little smarter race, then he, clearly he would have meddled. The, right. the idea of meddling was not pre-Fontaine. He, he ran every race to the fullest to win. He was either going to win or die. And that is another element of Nike's never been a brand that, hey, what do we need to do to meddle? We're here to win. Prior to the race, Free himself proclaimed, I'm going to win that gold medal. Silver is crap. Bronze is crap. God, if I only got a bronze, I could never go home to Oregon again. I'm going to win that gold medal. And when I asked Greg if there was any other athlete that mirrored that same ruthless warrior mentality, here's what he said. Besides Jordan, who I think uh, I see a lot of similarities there, competitive drive, this idea of this setting the bar at greatness and the relentless pursuit of it, um, the way pre-trained, nobody else trained like he did, the way Jordan prepared, the way Jordan worked, the way he trained. And he would you know he was like Jordan. He was vocal. Uh, about those who did not elevate to that level. Pre has one of my all-time favorite quotes. Uh, Somebody may beat me, but they're going to have to bleed to do it. And that, to me, is the lasting impact on Nike. Just that competitive drive and our refusal to relinquish greatness. And, and, the, and the ask of the spring. Pre's look and sense of showmanship is reason number four behind his unique appeal. Prefontaine's rock and roll personality was coupled with long hair, penetrating eyes, and the classic 70s stash and sideburns. When Pre walked onto the track or into a room, all heads turned. Pre naturally radiated style, and he successfully backed up this bravado by delivering the goods. Steve did what many thought impossible. He made distance running cool. Pre may have lacked tack, but in part, that's what endeared him to his fans. Knight himself was starstruck by Pre's bigger-than-life persona, as he explains in his stellar shoe dog story. Whenever I saw him at the track or around the Nike offices, I became mute. 
I tried to con myself. More than once I told myself that Priya was just a kid from Coos Bay, a short, shaggy-haired jock with a porn star mustache. But I knew better, and a few minutes in his presence would prove it. A few minutes was all that I could take. But Pri gave as much as he received. He was a champion of athletic rights. As a trailblazer, he never backed away from the powerful AAU, Tracks Governing Body. Steve's lobbying efforts would ultimately pave the way for all Olympians to make a living wage without endangering their amateur status. When his scholarship ended, Pri was fresh out of cash. Steve lived on food stamps during his final year at the University of Oregon. But Steve refused to accept a lucrative professional contract rather than endanger his shot at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Pri also spread the gospel of running to the state penitentiary inmates in order to provide them with hope, and he continually spoke to teens about the dangers of drugs. Mary Creel, Steve's college sweetheart, said that he had become convinced that physical training could be the cure to most of the world's problems. Here's how Greg describes Pri's impact on his community. The story of behind the story is what I think is rich, and, and, and probably the rich part of all athletes. I think the fact that he was vocal. He he, had, he was vocal with uh, with youth, particularly youth that were in trouble around this idea of you can turn your life around. But it's interesting how he he saw running as a means to an ends to do that. He really believed this notion that physical training could solve the world's problems. You could be rejuvenated by sheer effort. And that was how he trained. And and that's how he thought that if he could get at-risk kids to believe that, then things could turn around. He started, which I thought was an unbelievable move at the time that nobody really talks about, but the uh, the sport program at the Oregon State Penitentiary which uh, you don't see a lot of athletes before or since that have made a, a commitment like that around this idea of he believed that his craft and, and this idea that it could solve uh, for these individuals. I love the courage uh, in doing that. Factor number six behind Pri's legacy involves his enduring partnership with Nike. Like Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson, Prefontaine's impact was amplified by the iconic brand. In fact, Steve was Nike's second athlete endorser behind only Ily Nastasi, the Romanian tennis player. Given Pri's challenging finances, the Nike founders Knight and Bowerman provided Steve with a $5,000 annual salary to become their national PR manager in 1973. This allowed Pre to move out of his trailer in Springfield into a home on McKinley Street in Eugene. Many years later, Knight would say that Pre's spirit is the cornerstone of this company's soul. Phil would ensure that all who entered the Nike campus would be greeted by Pre's statue and the Prefontaine Hall, which houses notable memorabilia and an employee auditorium. Doobie describes Pre's ferocious running style and its impact on Phil and Nike as such. He was absolutely relentless his quest to run from the front and this notion I'm, I'm going to drive hard all the way i think had a lot of influence because of that style on night as it relates to when you start talking about the soul of the company that's the piece of prefontaine that i think exists in our heritage in a big way. That's the piece that I think Knight took from him 
around how we led and managed the company. We will lead from the front. When I asked Greg if Phil had ever spoken to him about pre, here's what he said. The only thing that he he's talked about with me personally about was just what it was like to watch him run. It was an experience that you never forgot. Because the literally you could see what that head tilt in his eyes like almost circled back in his head. Phil as a runner certainly could connect with him, but just the amount of pain and suffering that he could endure to perfect his craft was, I think, for a runner or for a working class from Coos Bay, when you went to the track meet, you could see that and you could absolutely connect with it. And you could just feel it that this, I'm watching somebody leave nothing behind. People just were, they gravitated to that because they just, you've never seen that before. Sadly, the final factor which cements Pree's legacy is his passing at the young age of 24. On May 30th, 1975, Steve lost control of his MG sports car going around a sharp curve after a party following his final performance on Hayward Field. Pree crossed the center line of Skyline Boulevard, a road he frequently traveled, and after hitting a natural rock wall, Steve's automobile flipped and crushed him. Had Steve been wearing a seatbelt or had a passing driver stopped to help, his ultimate fate might well have been different. And in an ironic twist, according to Knight, the MG was the first thing that Pre bought after signing on as a Nike promotions man. The 1972 Olympic marathon gold medalist Frank Shorter was the last man to see Pre alive. As a friend and a frequent competitor, Frank was deeply impacted by Steve's death. But he spoke of Pre's lasting imprint as such. Steve belonged in running. I mean, he, he belonged in his event. He belonged in Oregon. You know, he belonged in Coos Bay, he belonged in Eugene, he belonged on the Olympic team. That's what he was. And, and I would hope that, that people could uh, learn about him and, and at least as far as he was able to get in his life and say, maybe, maybe that's where I belong too. Again, I'd like to thank Greg Duby for being so gracious with his time and his thoughts. And here are his final words on Pre. He just obsessed on delivering on this notion of leave nothing behind. And that's, I don't know of anybody in my lifetime that died 24 years old that you could say left nothing behind. It takes most people till they're 24 to figure out what they want to do with their life. He died with lessons and a legacy that can still teach the world how to conduct yourself, how to attack your craft, the mindset you need to have to be successful. The Coos Bay kid at 24 left that legacy, left nothing on the table, which I think I have not read or heard of anybody that could say that. In my mind, Pre's legacy lives on because of his unique mixture of roots, results, intensity, looks, and righteousness. His legend was further enhanced by his Nike allyship and the tragic nature 
of his unrealized Olympic dreams. Not surprisingly, Prey's funeral took place on Hayward Field. I'll leave you with the words of Bill Bowerman as he says goodbye. This clip comes from the film Without Limits, where Bill is played by Donald Sutherland. All of my life, man and boy, I've operated under the assumption that the main idea in running was to win the damn race. Actually, when I became a coach, I tried to teach people how to do that. I tried to teach Pre how to do that. Tried like hell to teach Pre to do that. And Pre taught me. Taught me I was wrong. Pre, you see, was troubled by knowing that a mediocre effort can win a race. And a magnificent effort can lose one. Winning a race wouldn't necessarily demand that he give it everything he had from start to finish. He never ran any other way. I tried to get him to. God knows I tried. But Pre was stubborn. He insisted on holding himself to a higher standard than victory. A race is a work of art. That's what he said. That's what he believed. And he was out to make it one every step of the way. Of course, he wanted to win. Those who saw him compete and those who competed against him were never in any doubt about how much he wanted to win. But how he won mattered to him more. Pre thought I was a hard case. But he finally got it through my head that the real purpose of running isn't to win a race. It's to test the limits of the human heart. And that he did. Nobody did it more often. Nobody did it better. Thank you for listening to my episode on Pre. I'm not a runner, but I am a proud Oregonian and former Nike employee. In turn, Steve has been ever-present in my life, as he has for many. I was a senior in high school when Pre was tragically killed. I vividly remember his passing, just as I do that of Elvis, Lady Di, and Kobe. Next episode, we'll be heading back to the business world when I speak to a renowned recruiter about the ins and outs of hiring in today's sports industry world. In the meantime, please check out my new website, heavyhittersports.com, where you can listen to previous shows and subscribe to catch all future episodes.